We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning, one and all. Welcome to the gathering of Fellowship Bible Church. We're not technically welcoming you to this building. You say, what do you mean? Well, because we're welcoming you to the church family not to the building. We could pick ourselves up and move somewhere else and it'd be still welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. So we're glad to be gathered together this morning and I tell you I am glad to see more of the flock here in this fold than we have seen in a little while. It feels like, uh, well, with this spring, spring-like weather out there, I mean, you know, we're all getting better, right? Yeah, keep coming. Although... January and February, I think, will have their wrath yet. Don't talk too loud, loud, okay. (laughs) Yeah, there's a, when you ask me to pray against the seasons, there's a problem with that, because in Genesis 9, it says the seasons will continue, whether you like it or not, well, it doesn't say the last part, but it is whether you like it or not, so... Let's turn our Bibles to Song of Solomon, please. We're in chapter 7, 7 of 8 of this book. This chapter is full of very intimate praise of the lovers one for another. And uh, some might ask, why are you reading this in a public service? Well, number one, it's Bible. Number Two, it's, of course, because of that, it's uh, breathed out by God. But on a more practical level, I suspect that somebody listening or somebody present may need to be reminded of these expressions of intimate love between a husband and wife and put them into practice to improve your marriage. So let us read Song of Solomon and chapter 7. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter, so the man speaking to the woman. The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, Your neck is like an ivory tower, your eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights! This stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take a hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples. 
and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us go get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give off a fragrance, and at our gates we I'm sorry, and at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner, new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. Song of Solomon chapter seven, and may God indeed bless that reading of his word in your life as it applies. We turn our attention then to the book of Genesis. Let's go back there to Genesis. It's been a few weeks since we've been in this study, so I'll give a little bit of a review to hopefully get us up to speed again. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 18. We'll just be taking the first few uh, verses here in the chapter, not the entire chapter, because uh, the second half of it, roughly speaking, uh, does kind of belong with chapter 19, I think, in terms of its topic or subject matter. Take a, a moment then. Well, actually, let's do this. Let's just pray and ask God's blessing on our exposition today and our hearing of his word. Lord, give us ears to hear today, not only to hear, but to obey. Watch over us as we uh, dig into this text for a little bit this morning, and may it be an encouragement and, and a strengthening thing for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting with chapter 12, I won't go back all the way to the beginning of the book. Really, 1 to 11 forms kind of a unit, speaking of the creation of the world and the beginning of the nations and, and those things uh, that kind of set the table, if you will, for what God wants to communicate in chapters 12 through 50 of Genesis and then on into Exodus and beyond. But we start with chapter 12 then in this segment. God's initial description there is of the, of the uh, rather Abrahamic covenant. And uh, we remember those promises that God made in the early verses. He commanded uh, Abram to move, and he did, to Haran, and then over to the Promised Land. And then later on, he moved again to Egypt temporarily because of the uh, local circumstances there. In chapter 13, he moves back uh, to the Promised Land. And you remember the occasion there where they had to split Lot from Abram because they had too much stuff. You know, you think about that in your life. I, we, we feel like sometimes we just have too many material possessions. It's just, you know, it's too much junk, we call it sometimes, you know, too much stuff. But uh, they had too many things. Too, actually, their herds were too large. They had to split apart, so they had room to, to graze them and so on. Lot moved towards Sodom, which turned out to be a devastating decision uh, for him in two particular incidents that happened later on. And one of those incidents happened right away in chapter 14, where he, he, Lot himself and uh, other people in the city were kidnapped by a coalition of kings that came up to Sodom and their allied cities and defeated them. So uh, Abram went out and retrieved him and met Melchizedek, the king of Salem, at that uh, incident, and uh, he was blessed by the king of Salem. And, of course, Abram shared a tithe with him of the things that he had gained in, uh, re in defeating those kings. In chapter 15, God officially made or cut the covenant with Abram. Remember the ritual that we looked at? 
the cut pieces of animal and God walking through in, in a kind of a strange theophany, walking through the midst of those pieces. Abram being put asleep on the side there, indicating that this was a one-sided kind of covenant. Obviously, he had obligations on Abram, but it did not involve his, uh, the fulfillment of it, rather, did not involve his participation in that sense. God was going to see to it, and that way it was kind of unilateral. In chapter 16, Hagar bore Ishmael, which was the result of what I call in my notes a harebrained idea to try to help God to get an, an heir for Abram and Sarai because they didn't seem to be able to get it done. And so um, that was the beginning of a, another kind of mess. But God still exercised tender care towards all involved, and particularly we saw his care toward Hagar, the expectant mother, and then afterwards as she had her, her son. And then uh, finally in chapter 17, up to, to bring us up to where we are, God reiterated the covenant a third time, chapter 12, 15, and 17, and he gave us physical sign for the covenant to remind the nation of that covenant, and that sign was male circumcision, uh, and remind them of not only the promises of the covenant, but also the obligations of the covenant. The promises being like, Abraham, you're going to multiply, you're going to have many descendants, the kings are going to come from you and your wife, uh, you're going to have this land uh, forever your people will have this, and then, of course, the responsibilities as well. Whenever you get into a relationship with God, there are going to be blessings and there are going to be obligations, right? Actually, whenever you get into a relationship with anybody, there's going to be blessings and there's going to be obligations, obligations of faithfulness and, and blessings of togetherness, and that's the case with this relationship God had with the nation of Israel as with any relationship that we have with God, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New. And so they were expected to keep the covenant. Abram was in his descendants and also to walk blamelessly. Remember, God told him, walk without blame before me. When I went through this review, I just noticed, and maybe because we went through it too fast, you didn't notice, but let me just call it to your attention, that there is a cyclical nature to these chapters. You have the promise in 12, you have the failure of Lot in 13. And the recovery from that failure, God you know, graciously allows Lot to be recovered. And then in 15, you have the promise of God again and the giving of the covenant. Chapter 16, you have the failure of Hagar and Ishmael and God's gracious provision for them. In chapter 17, you have again the promise and the sign of the covenant. And now in chapter 18, there's going to be a little bit of a failure again. So you have the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs. And of course, you know, the highs are when God is doing his part and the lows are when people get their fingers into the business and try to mess things up and indeed, indeed accomplish that. So that's the cyclical nature of this portion of Scripture. God's promise, man's failure, and God's rescue. God's promise is confirmed, man has another failure, God remains faithful, and then God reiterates his promises yet again. So just remember that, always the case. We have that cycle in our lives too, the ups and the downs. We know God's faithfulness. We fail him. We're grateful for his faithfulness to his promise to cleanse us from all iniquity. Remember that, 1 John 1, 9, and so on. Well, let's look at chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. The title of this segment is Three Unannounced Visitors three unannounced visitors. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Imagine yourself at home and three unannounced visitors come to your property and you know that you ought to give them some hospitality. No previous announcement, no phone call ahead, no text, nothing. They're just there. Now what do we do? 18.1, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. I almost, I almost overlooked this when I'm, I was studying um, because to Abram, Abraham now, he sees the Lord coming. It says he lifted up his eyes in verse 2 and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. But Moses, in, in writing under the inspiration of God's Spirit, tells us it's, this is just the Lord. The Lord is appearing to Abraham. Now, this is not new for Abraham, was it? He had seen the Lord before or talked to him before. But he doesn't quite know at the beginning who these three men are that are standing, it says, standing by him, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass by, sorry, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by, and as much as you have come to your servant, And they said, do as you have said. So Abram was at home in his tent or at his tent in the hottest part of the day, probably the middle afternoon, and he observed these three men nearby who who evidently had appeared rather suddenly. Now the text says they were standing by him. When we read that in English, we think, well, that means that they're like, you know, right here. Well, when you live in a, that's like city thinking. You know what I'm saying? When you live out on a farm and you don't see people for a week at a time or more and you see somebody a quarter mile down the road, they're kind of by you. They're pretty nearby. And you're like, whoa, there's humans. <laughs> you know? Have you been in that situation before? Have you seen maybe see some videos of people that live out in big ranches and there's just nothing for miles, it seems like? So they were by him, but he, he had to run to go greet them. And so he did that. Now, we read that and we forget that Abram was nearly 100 years old. What 100-year-old gets up from his rocking chair and runs out to meet the visitors? So uh, that's interesting. The text says he ran. Now, how fast did he run? It doesn't say that. How spry was he? Well, with just as much, with just as much spryness as he could muster, he went out to see these guests. And that's an interesting thing, by the way, just to think about his eagerness to speak to these people and to be uh, humble and hospitable to them. He bowed to the ground to greet these ones. And verse number two at the end, it says that. Now, just imagine, if you will, Abram, Abraham, father of a multitude, exalted father, with the huge household that he has. I mean, with 318 servants, he may have... 400 people around his household. I mean, this is a clan. This is a tribe. This is a, a, you know, a real big encampment, perhaps. And he sees these ones, and he humbles himself like that. Is that what a mighty man does? Well, in this case, it is. He shows his greatness by showing his service toward these guests whom he does not yet know uh, who they are. And so he bows to the ground and addresses the evident leader of the group 
using the term Lord, and as you may know in the Bible, that doesn't always mean God. That can mean sir. That can mean a, it's an it's a address, like a, an honorific title. So he doesn't necessarily know yet that this is actually the L-O-R-D, Lord, this one who has come and uh, the others with him. But he basically says, you know, since you're coming by this way, it's not going to be out of your way just to come on over to my tent and I'll offer you some hospitality. Um, It's going to take time, of course. But listen, as we know later on, and we know from verse 1 that this is the Lord, and it's two angels, we'll explain that a little further later, they have all the time in the world. They're not worried about making their next deadline. They'll make it whenever they well please to make it. In the, in the ancient Near East, in the Middle East, this, the idea of time wasn't even that critical. You know, we think, you know, we invite somebody over, they, we invite them at 5 o'clock, they got to be there. If they're not there by 5.10, they're late. We have dinner, we go home, you know, we think in this kind of regimented schedule. Now, that's not the same in every culture, but in the West more so, and amongst those of European descent perhaps more so. It's it just, it, I mean, if you go to South America, for example, although they're of European descent, many of them, the, it's just totally different. People are the important thing, not the time schedule, okay? So uh, he offers them this hospitality, and the visitors agree, and uh, use uh, Dan's language, they agree to stay for a spell. Sit for a spell, I guess you would say, but I'll say stay. And uh, they came and, and, uh, and hung out there. And it wasn't just a fast food joint that they were going to. You'll see that. Um, it says in verse uh, 3, well, after he ran out to them, and invites them to come in. Then we're, we're looking at Abraham and Sarah's hospitality. And he says uh, he's going to bring them some bread and all of that. So Abraham hurried into the tent, verse number 6, and said, quickly make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, and gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he'd prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. So I said this wasn't a fast food operation because they're starting from scratch. I mean, talk about fresh meat. This wasn't out of the freezer. And so, you know, kill the calf and prepare it, cook it, roast it, and all of that. And that's what they had to do. So this was, you know, how long does it take to do that? You know, maybe a couple of hours of preparation for that to cook and all. And... So they're sitting around, I guess, I don't know, chatting. He was concerned about these visitors. He was not lazy about serving them. And this gives me an opportunity just to talk a little bit about hospitality. He had offered them hospitality. What is hospitality? Can you give a definition of hospitality? I'll give you a simple one. It's using your home to minister to others. Using your home to minister to others. The Greek word from where we get hospitality comes from the two root words that mean to love strangers, to love strangers, philos, You hear the philos there, the phileo love, and the xenos, like the word xenophobia comes from that. Xenos means others or foreigners. 
So philozenos, hospitality, loving strangers. So it's not just hosting your own family or extended family in your home that we're talking about. It means hosting strangers. Also, hospitality is not just the mere use of your home. It's the use of your home to minister to others, to serve other people. It ministers to them by providing rest and fellowship and edification, teaching. Uh, if, If you're having hospitality for people who aren't Christians, guess what it shows them? It shows them how a Christian home looks, how it works, how it feels. I don't know if you're sensitive to this, but... Depending on where you are, if you're a Christian, especially with the Spirit of God, you can feel the atmosphere almost, can't you? Have you had that experience before? You go to a place and it feels dark. I've been in a home or other homes where it's like, man, this the palpable darkness. Or you go to a place and it's like spiritually bright and it's and it feels light and, and joyous and airy, not just the you know, not just the humidity and the staleness of the air I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the spiritual condition of it. So uh, when, you give, when you bring people into your home as a Christian, you're showing them what a Christian home looks like. When you don't do that, then you don't have the opportunity to minister and testify that way. It's ministry. It's service, hospitality is. It's serving others. It helps these people. It generates and sustains interpersonal connection. It provides encouragement. To some people, some people who aren't in the faith, for you to invite them into your home is a very important step of establishing a relationship with that person. And so you want to make sure to be using that. I mean, with all of this, what's not to like about hospitality? Well, I don't like to share my stuff. My home is dirty. Um, what other excuses? It's not nice enough. Um, I don't know. You, can, you probably can think of all kinds of excuses. Abraham was certainly using his home to minister to strangers, and we are also commanded to offer hospitality to people. Not, it's not optional. The, the, the church will be well-oiled and work together and, and be close together if we offer hospitality to one another. That's why some months ago we encouraged you, instead of you know, having our monthly potlucks in the fall when the, the uh, sickness began to be worse, just invite people to your home or take them out to a meal and enjoy some fellowship that way and some together time. So Abraham quickly arranged for the food uh, he asked Sarah to make cakes uh, or bread out of the, 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 the dough that she was having there and the young calf. You know, of course, you can imagine a- Abraham coming to his wife and saying, look, we have guests. When are they coming, dear? Well, they're already here, actually. Ah! You know, what am I going to do? Um, so she's in a hurry to make something, and he has a servant help out. And, and then it says that... Um, In verse number 8, he brought out the butter, the milk, the meat, and of course he said something about water and washing their feet before. So he puts out a a bit of a picnic under one of the trees where he lived there. By the way, it says the terebinth trees of Mamre. Mamre was the Amorite owner of this plot of ground. It was somewhat elevated, 
a place where there were trees, perhaps moisture for those trees. Trees would be prized for shade, uh, for their kind of you know hospitable area, and also for the wood that may they may have as you pruned them or used them for a little fire and stuff like that. Now, the strangers are there. Uh, they're being shown great hospitality. And then in verses 9 to 15, they, they make the strangers themselves make a very strange promise. A very strange promise. The guests naturally inquired in verse number 9, where is Sarah, your wife? Obviously, they had heard about her or maybe seen her scurrying about getting ready. And so he said, here in the tent. Now, I'm not sure you know, how the passage of time went and if she was in and out or had met them and they were just asking or she hadn't come out at all because that wasn't the thing you do when, I don't know, in this cultural context, it's not clear. But she's absent, at least at the moment. She was behind the guests in their tent. They were out in front of it, maybe some distance. And uh, so we're, we're expecting, you know, they'd like to offer thanks to the gracious hostess and tell her how much they like the food and, 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 and just be grateful. And yet he said this, I'm going to come back in about a year and your Sarah is going to have a baby, a son. Now that is a housewarming gift right there. How about that? In terms, however, of natural procreation, this was highly unrealistic. Abraham was, as I said, about 100 years old, Sarah about 90. Now, they were not living in the era when people lived to 800 or 1,000 years. And I don't even know how long people who lived 800 years old were able to bear children. I suspect longer than we are today, but I don't know how much longer. But we know this, uh, that Sarah would live to 127 and Abraham to 175. But apparently, even though they live those somewhat longer years than we do, the time for child rearing was past. That was during the younger years, as it is for us today. Sarah was probably not having her monthly cycle, so it was impossible for her to have children. Now, sometime earlier that year, we learned from chapter 17, verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he uh, was circumcised and all of the family was as well. That's when God gave the promise, again reiterated it, and told them, here's the sign of it. And in that chapter... God had said, you're going to have a son. And by the way, you're going to name him Isaac. And a couple of times he says that in verse 19. Uh, well, verse 18, Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, know that he might be the promised son. And God said, nope, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him. And a couple of times there in chapter 17, God mentions the name Isaac and uh, promised that Sarah would have a, a child. So earlier, sometime earlier in the prior year, they have been told, you're going to have a son. Now the Lord comes back. Why do you think the Lord has to come back and tell them again and again and again? Well, we'll see in a moment. So... That would not be Ishmael, it was going to be Isaac. And at that time, by the way, in, in chapter 
17, uh, the Bible tells us in verse 17 of 17 that Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? He was 99 at the time. Going to be 100 when this baby comes along in nine months or whatever, 10 months. And uh, wow, he's laughing. He was initially short on faith. Get that, okay? He took the promise of God and he kind of mocked it, kind of laughed at it, didn't he? Short on faith. Now it was Sarah's turn to laugh at the promise of God. So it carries on and it says in verse, uh, let's see, number uh, 11, they were old, well advanced in years. Uh, He had said in verse 10 that I'm going to come according to the time of life and behold, Sarah, your wife will have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. By the way, uh, I didn't look ahead too far, but it was a bit hard for me to think of when the Lord appeared a year later or nine months later to Abraham based on the text. Where did he appear to him? Maybe you can find it for me, okay? A little exercise. He said, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to see that you have this son, and your laughing is going to turn back on yourself, and you're going to see that I have the last laugh, not you. So she was behind, listening in the tent door, which was behind the speaker. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, she was past childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? I mean, imagine in that culture, you're a wife for how many years? You want to have a baby, probably. I mean, it seems for sure that she did. And she couldn't have. And so she said, been there, done that, tried that, didn't work out. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, surely I, uh, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Now, how did he know that she laughed? It says she laughed within herself. She didn't want to be rude to the guests and laugh out loud, but she laughed within herself. And then... The Lord goes on and says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Or maybe I should say it this way, this leading man of the three, since we didn't know that he was the Lord necessarily yet. He says, at the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. She knew that he was right You know, imagine the internal snicker in her heart. (laughs) Right, right, guy. Yeah, you're you're smart. We know that's not going to happen. But God made now the promise several times. Chapter fifteen, fourteen, or sorry, fifteen four. Chapter seventeen, verse nineteen, and now yet again. And the general tenor of the whole Abrahamic covenant demanded that Abraham have a seed not an adopted one. So the Lord, by his omniscience, perceived that Sarah had laughed, but reiterated the promise again and asked, is there anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, guys, do you hear an echo? In the New Testament, the disciples said, who then can be saved? 
if you, I mean, this rich fellow, and it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, harder than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And they say, what, who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, with men, that's impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. It's all possible. Somebody can be saved as hard as, hard as their face is toward the things of God, as closed as they are to the things of God. They can be saved. God can do that work. So, by the way, if you're praying for somebody to be saved and they're not, it's, it's not working, well, once God starts working, it'll start working. Keep, yeah, right. Keep praying. Don't give out or give up or give in. God had repeatedly given the promise, and even in their moments of unbelief, he did not abandon his plan. You know, isn't that just like God? He puts his plan in place, and he's going to work the plan whether people believe him or not, whether we are faithful or not. He remains faithful, period. Thank God for that in regard to our salvation. He's persistent. He's long-suffering. He's patient with people, slow of faith or of little faith. Jesus on the boat. Oh, ye of little faith. I wonder how many times he said that. There's several in the gospel, isn't there? Oh, ye of little faith. You know, the... The, the withering almond or fig tree and, and the boat. and Many times he could have said that. This is our problem. We do not believe God when he says things. When he promises, we doubt. When he tells what is coming, we ignore. When he commands us to do something, we delay or thumb our noses at it entirely. Now, may I remind you that I'm talking about God here? He promises we doubt. He commands we ignore. He tells us what's coming and we don't pay attention. God, we're not talking about a politician or a crook or a liar. Sorry, I'm repeating myself. We're talking about the creator of all things, who knows everything, who has all power, who loves his people. You might object, well, what he said is impossible. It can't happen. I beg to differ, my friends. If you turn your Bible to chapter 21, you'll see that a son was born. You call it impossible if you want. You might not know exactly how it worked. I think I know how it worked in a sense, mechanically, if you will, but it was all a miracle in the end. The salvation of your loved ones and neighbors is also impossible. But sometimes God works that very thing, salvation, in their lives despite the impossibility of it. The wisdom or grace that you need to face some situation may seem impossible. But with God, it is not impossible. Sarah was caught. Oops. She denied lying. She was moved by fear to make that denial. Isn't that the way you do a sin and then you got to lie to cover the sin, and you got to lie to cover the lie, and you, oh, you fear you don't, either does she fear God? I don't know about so much that. Did she fear insulting her guests? Maybe. Did she fear being found out as unbelieving? Maybe. She probably had a little bit of all those, but the fact is that the guest knew her thoughts. 
and she realized something far more deep was going on than just some guys that happened to come by who were walking in the neighborhood. Plus, she knew that God had spoken to her husband multiple times about this. I mean, you think Abraham didn't tell her that he kept it a secret? You know, honey, God talked to me today and said, we're going to have a son. Isn't that great? I laughed at first, Abraham said, and now her turn to laugh. Now, such a lie, like she told, might work with people, but it fails miserably with the all-knowing God. You can try to deceive others, and sometimes you'll succeed. You can deceive yourself, and frighteningly often it works. The world is full of self-deceived people, but you can never deceive God. Never deceive God. Just let the weight of that sink in. I remember as a young person hearing that and thinking, God knows everything that I'm thinking like it's printed on the page. He sees it. He knows it. I can't hide from God. What's the point of me trying to hide from God? I mean, I can't build a Faraday cage or a thick concrete wall, you know, nuclear uh, fallout uh, bunker thick enough to keep God out. He comes in through any crack or crevice that there is. In fact, he was already there when I began building that shelter from God whether it's a physical shelter or if it's a shelter in my own brain. He's the one who made the brain. Now, who are these visitors? We've already mentioned it, but there were three men, but they're really God and two angels who had taken on the appearance of men. We learn here as we read, and it kind of unfolds for us, and Abraham did by digesting what he was experiencing. It's kind of like when the the men on the road to Emmaus are walking with Jesus and they're talking to him and, and over the course of hours, and then they sit down and, and their eyes are open and they're like, whoa, this guy's he's the one we've been talking about this whole time. This is weird. And now these, uh, these men become more, it becomes evident to Abraham who they are. Uh, he was interacting with some men who were not really men. We mentioned how he addressed the leader as Lord, but it seems to be a courtesy title rather than a reference to him as God. But this is clearly a theophany. Later on in chapter 18 and verse 22, uh, the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So it means that there were three. The two of them went on to Sodom and Gomorrah to see what was going on down there. And uh, God was there. Uh, Abraham was standing with him. So God was appearing to him, and this is what we call a theophany. Theophany. It's a theos, God, phanerao, appearance or manifestation of God. Now, some appearances of God were very elaborate. The most elaborate one I could think of is in Ezekiel, when he has this, this thing that comes down, it's got wheels and these uh, living beings, and it moves, and all these colors and everything, that is really an appearance of the holy angels surrounding God and his throne there on the earth, and Ezekiel is seeing that by the river Kibar, and he's receiving revelation from them, from him rather. Others of these manifestations or theophanies of God are more normal, like the incarnation of Christ was. I mean, if you just were walking down the street past Jesus, you wouldn't probably have noticed 
that he was the son of God. He looked like a man. He did not have, you know, a halo over his head wherever he walked like he's portrayed sometimes in the paintings. He seemed initially at least to be like a regular human being, and that's what was happening here. In 19.1, now the two angels came to Sodom. So Moses is explicitly telling us, these are the angels, God had appeared to him, and that's what Abraham had done. He had offered hospitality as if God needed hospitality to God and to two angels. Hebrews 13 alludes to this passage when it says that we must not neglect hospitality because it's possible that we could be entertaining angels in so doing. Now, that's not the usual case, obviously. But there's still the general instructions for us to be hospitable. Romans 12, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 4, 9, five passages, all instruct us to be hospitable, to use our homes to do what? To minister to people, to use our homes to minister to people. Your home doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, I wager that none of our homes are perfect. They don't look perfect. They don't have to be perfect. You know what a perfect home is? It's a home that's used to minister to people. That's what a perfect home is. Now, some lessons that we can take. First of all, trust God regarding his promises. Don't laugh at them. Don't mock them. Don't ignore them. Don't be merely pragmatic, thinking, well, that's not possible. It might not be humanly possible, but with God, there's a different a different kind of equation going on. Remember the promises that are as yet unfulfilled to Abraham, because they will be fulfilled even if it does seem impossible. We spoke yesterday about replacement theology, and we don't believe that, just for the record, so you're clear about that. Church has not replaced Israel. But to some, it seems impossible that God would bring Israel back to the forefront of his program. Well, God specializes in that very thing. I mean, that's just what he does. He makes, he kind of arranges things so that they are impossible in order to demonstrate that it was him who solved the issue. We've talked about this with regard to the Messiah's birth. Uh, he was, all, you know, in, otherwise he would have been coming from a cursed line of Jeconiah. God arranged for the virgin birth so that he would avoid the passage of that curse from father to son. God made a literally impossible situation so that David could not have an offspring and then arranged a situation where he did have an offspring. And here this is the same kind of thing. Number four, Lesson four, do be hospitable. Make it your aim in 2023 to be more hospitable than you were in 2022. Know God is omniscient and omnipotent, and as a result, don't lie because you're not going to hide it from him. And finally, I would say this from this passage, let's thank God for his patience with people like us who have little faith. Thank God for his patience because we do have little faith and it's something that we need to overcome and we can do by and by with his help. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to spend some time looking at the lessons here uh, from Abraham, from Sarah, from their humble hospitality, from the 
their disbelief initially, and then, as we learn later on, their stronger faith. Lord, we are grateful for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant because in it, the church itself finds its home as well. Watch over us, I pray. May we be encouraged and strengthened by what we've heard and what we will experience in fellowship just after the service and even as we sing this closing hymn today. We come before you in the name of Christ, which is above every name. Amen.